Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome to episode number 26 of Two Developers Down Under. My name is Mark Mandel and I am joined yet again by the bouncily brave Kai Koenig. Kai, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Mark. Good day, everyone. Yes, I'm actually awake. It's a reasonable hour. It's about 9am, so I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, it's 11am here, so it's a little bit later in the morning than usual for me. Yeah, so you're not going to hear me very energetic at the beginning and then towards the end just kind of slowly drift off into sleep. So, on to normal things. What exciting stuff have you found out that has happened today? Yeah, I, I have to say the 9th of October is not really a great day from my point of view for that type of stuff. I found um, I, a few... I'm going to disagree with you on that one, but that's all right. Okay, Let's no, that's, that's fine. I've got a few, you know, sort of semi-interesting thingies, huh? basically. One is um, in 1804, which is like 208 years ago, if I counted correctly, Hobart was founded. Yeah, I saw that one too. The capital of Tasmania. San Francisco was also founded today. Oh, really? Yep, San Francisco. Uh, as well as the founding of Yale College as well. Okay, that's quite interesting. The, another one I found is um, uh, today is the anniversary of Che Guevara being executed in Bolivia. Oh, yep. Yeah. For uh, starting to, for trying to start a revolution there. That's a good one. I've got Harvard Law School begins admitting women today. Ooh. I wonder See, who allowed that. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I had, a, I had one more, actually. Um, oh, yeah. In 1942, um, the Statute of Westminster formalized the Australian autonomy. That should be interesting for you guys. Oh, I've got one. Good physics one. Hoover Dam begins transmitting electricity today. 76th anniversary. That's more an engineering one, not really a physics. I mean, yeah, physics as well, but it's more an engineering effort to do that than a physics Both. effort. Well, you know, if you it's said physics like... Physics that allows the ability yeah, to create if electricity. You, if you said like, you know, today was the anniversary of electricity being discovered, I would say, yeah, that's maybe a physics one or the first nuclear, you know, reaction or something like that. But I think it's more an engineering achievement. Okay, so on to more important things than your useless babble. Um, we have people <laughs> really? who are joining us today. Uh, shall we introduce them to our listeners? Yeah, we can do that. Why don't you give it a go? Go. Okay, we have. We have. Okay, so I'm not going to try pronouncing the last name. Uh, Marchin, you're, you're alphabetically first in our list. Could you uh, say a quick hello? Uh, hello. Good morning, everyone. Martin is one of our speakers at the CF Objective ANZ conference. Do you uh, want to give us a little background on yourself, Martin, and and, and uh, tell us a little bit of your history and what? Yeah, sure. Um, I've been working with Cold Fusion, I guess, for five and a half, almost six years, um, basically since I started my current job, which is at uh, Webcam. So we're a medium-sized, I guess, digital agency based in Sydney. Um, we do all sorts of work for clients, websites, and everything else that sort of our clients ask of us. Um, so yeah, I've been in that space for a while now. I do not just Cold Fusion, but also front-end stuff, database stuff, and also um, double in a bit of iOS development as well. That's a quite interesting mix, actually. You know, So it's quite nice to do different things, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, bit of a generalist but I mean at a small company it's that sort of thing that you sort of end up picking up all sorts of stuff because well there's not anyone else to do it really 
Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, how do you actually pronounce your last name after Mark has some sort of you know wiggled out, tr- giving it a try? Oh, totally. I'm like S Z C Z or Z. I can never remember which one's which, but that's like that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I pronounce when I just in speaking English, I pronounce it um, Shapansky. That just makes okay. it easier. But yeah, um, the S Z C Z is actually it's like two separate. How much belt mail do you get? <laughs> Not that much, really, but um, I mean, so, I end up having to takes about you know two minutes to spell my first and last name whenever I'm talking to a call center or something. Yeah, I find I find that so I get a lot of misspelt mail, misspelt mail, mis- you know, like I get handle, I get mandle with two L's, and my name is not particularly complicated. I would have thought at the very least for yours it would have been. Yeah. Okay, maybe it's like a it's like the simpler your name, the more likely people are you know they're like oh they can just mess that up anyway. But a more complicated name, they actually take the time to learn how to how to spell it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, a lot of the time these days, you're typing into online forms anyway, so... True. There's Very no true. issues there. So we also have another fellow with us. Um, many of you probably know him already. Uh, Phil Husler. Is that how you pronounce your last name? No, not at all. Ah, oh, good. I butchered it entirely. <laughs> well, that's, that's good to know I'm on a roll. Good effort, Mark. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Nice try. Nice try. Phil. We'll just call you Phil. Sounds good. Good morning. So, do you want to give us a bit of background on yourself as well? Yeah, certainly. So, I'm a, a Melbourne-based uh, freelance developer, um, working, I guess, talking about Cold Fusion, working at Cold Fusion now for, with Cold Fusion for probably about a dozen years uh, since the uh, very early days. But um, these days, freelance developer, basically doing anything that will pay the bills. It's kind of, kind of a bit like that, but um, largely these days doing uh, mobile apps, so iOS apps, uh, a lot of phone gap work as well. And I believe uh, you recently became the Melbourne Adobe User Group Manager as well? That's true. The opportunity came up uh, or the vacancy came up and, uh, yeah, I was asked uh, if I'd like to, to take that on. So now uh, sort of heading out the, uh, the Melbourne Adobe Developers Group. We call ourselves MAD, um, which, yeah, we're meeting uh, every month and we're sort of, uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty exciting taking that on and uh, you know, hoping to grow the group and, uh, you know, get, let everyone get a bit more out of it. You've recently moved the group to Meetup, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So um, the um, traditionally all the Adobe groups sit on uh, the groups.adobe.com site, yep. um, which is not the world's best. <laughs> you know, I, I have no problem calling it what it is. It's basically a really, really bad site. It's not user-friendly. It is not properly advertised. It just is annoying to work with. And I have no. no problem saying it. That's my opinion because I did the same thing. I moved away from yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still new at this. And the first thing I did was, was move away from the site. Um, <laughs> and really, it's just being able for, for people to discover the group. You know, you, you only find the group if you're explicitly looking for an Adobe group. Um, so, you know, I, I thought we'd give meetup.com a try. Um, and, and really, we've I've, I've set that up about a week ago now and sort of, the, the number of people we've had sign up who I've sort of never met before or who haven't come to previous meetups, um, I think, is a really good indication that, that oh, that's um, really good. The, the, the reach that meetup.com has is, is much, much uh, broader than, than Adobe Group's ever had. So really happy with the move and hopefully, you know, it, it's something that we can continue to see the, the group grow in, uh, in uh, bigger and, and cover more, bring in more of the Melbourne developer community than we, we ever did before. We had no, the same experience with our Wellington groups, basically. We moved both of them to Meetup, and um, the WebTech group is now at 120 
members basically and the creative suite user group is just above 100 now i think which is like you know probably three or four fold of what it used to be before we moved to meetup mm-hmm. No, that's good. I know there's a there's a bunch of meetup groups that I've subscribed to that I plan on attending on a regular basis. I don't necessarily get there, but I definitely plan on attending. And look, I mean, even if people don't attend, it's it's really just having that line of communication to them to you know yeah. to be able to market to them. And and you know maybe there's one one or two groups a year they they might come to, but you know they would have missed out had we just sort of kept it on the Adobe Group site. So um, yeah, sort of everything looks promising at the moment, and hopefully we can sort of. Uh, replicate some of the success in getting members that, that Kai has had with the uh, Wellington meetup. That all sounds really good. So moving on to the topic of hand, which is CIF Objective A&Z, um, you guys are both speaking. Uh, you both have some pretty interesting topics, though slightly different. Um, Martin, you're, you're presenting on adding structure to Core Fusion applications with Framework 1 beyond the basics. So obviously, um, I assume that uh, you, you, you're talking about Framework 1, but kind of taking it to the, the next level? Um, yeah, so basically, well, originally the, the, um, the talk I, I pitched was that was an introduction to Framework 1 and sort of talking about the idea was that um, I think personally, at least ColdFusion seems to sort of get that sort of same bad rap that PHP does in term, because people associated with that, you know, mixing of code and HTML all in a single file. And so... Um, the idea was to say, you know, you can go a step up and sort of split up your code and make it nice and framework one, I think is a good way of doing that because it's very lightweight. But anyway, Kai suggested that maybe a more advanced talk. And so that's why it's now beyond the basics. So I won't, I'll briefly gloss over how framework one works, but then I'll just get stuck into some of the more advanced features that let you take it to that extra level in terms of um, separating out your app and testing your app and that sort of thing. Without giving too much away, can you give us a, a bit of a taste on what sort of what sort of features you're going to be showing off? Uh, yeah, so for I mean, those who, who may not be familiar with uh, Framework 1? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I mean, that's called Framework 1, just basically splits up the view model controller sort of um, concerns as most frameworks do but i'll be talking about some of the stuff like um subsystems and uh routes for you know pretty urls and uh, a bit about testing with um mx unit and sort of just a couple of general tips on things you can do with framework one that you might not have thought of sort of thing um in your in your session abstract that's on the website you also mention going to show dependency injection with DI1. So I assume DI1 is basically a dependency injection framework that was written, you know, or built built for purpose to be used with framework one, wasn't it? Yeah, um, Sean Caulfield wrote DI1 as well. Um, I haven't actually used a whole lot. I actually do still use Cold Spring because it's only relatively, DI1 only, rel- not relatively recently, but it became stable after I started using framework one. So. Mm-hmm. My general application template I tend to use still has Cold Spring in it, but yeah, DI one is very simple, so it doesn't require any like where Cold Spring you define the whole configuration and you know tell it what beans go where and all that stuff. With DI one, you generally just point at a directory of beans and it kind of works out what to do with them. So it's simpler version, but generally, I guess for most people, it's probably enough. And I mean, you can use DI one separately from Framework one, but it's just provides the same sort of bean factory interface that any 
dependency injection framework would provide. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, I mean, one of the benefits of framework one is the ease of use, right? That it doesn't require a lot of overhead, a lot of configuration that you can pretty much, you know, you know that it does things by convention rather than configuration at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's exactly what attracted me to it in the first place because I'd used some previous frameworks in Cold Fusion that just had, you know, fairly heavy to configure and involved a lot of extra files, whereas Framework One's a single CFC that um, basically extends, um, well, your application CFC extends, and yeah, all the configuration, as you say, is by convention, so there's not usually much you have to override to get your app working. So that's really what drew me to it, that it just keeps everything simple and none of your controllers or anything have any dependencies on the framework. They're all basically standard CFCs. Mm, okay. Go on. Name names. Which frameworks didn't you like and why didn't you like them? Um, I, <laughs> I pretty much only used Coldbox, like actual yeah. applications, but at the time at least it was, yeah, fairly heavyweight. And then, I mean, I didn't really do any Cold Fusion application development for a while. I was doing a lot of flex stuff at work. Yep. And then when I yeah, came back to it, I sort of, framework one had sort of become stable and people were using it. So I thought I'd give that a go and yeah, liked it. Especially because I've played around with um, Ruby on Rails in the past. And so it's that same sort of yep. keeping things simple. I don't know if you could necessarily claim that Ruby on Rails keeps everything simple. Well, but that's that's a different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> at least it's that... that um, <laughs> Convention over configuration, there's certainly no... Agreed there. ...to wire up your controllers and so forth in um, in framework one or Rails or things like that. Phil, have you used um, framework one in the past? Yeah, I have actually. Um, it's it's basically my go-to uh, framework now for for starting any new Cold Fusion project. Um, just the, the simplicity of it all... Um, just cu it cuts down a lot of the code and the boilerplate that you need. And actually something I do a lot is tied into um, ColdSpring as well, um, making use of the abstract gateway um, functionality there, which basically handles, you know, you, you can cut out a lot of the, um, if you're using ORM at least, you know, cut out a lot of the um, the ORM code you'd have to write otherwise. So I find sort of uh, Framework 1 along with ColdSpring sort of creates a nice lightweight uh, framework that, you can, that really just gets out of the way and, and cuts down a lot of the code you have to write. So... Yeah, I'm really quite a fan of Framework One. Okay, cool, interesting. Um, what about you know your most disliked frameworks, Phil? <laughs> oh well, probably showing my age a, a little bit, but um, back uh, what was it? it? Would be Mac Two, I would say, back in maybe the CFMX days, CF Six or something like that, and. Um, CF6 just what really wasn't a good release, and it was quite slow. And I, I just remember the the the, the XML parsing of, of the configuration and the instantiating of all the objects and stuff. There were there were occasions where the um, you know, the the application just wouldn't start up because the request would time out before it had uh, fully initialized. Um, and so after that, sort of that bad um, bad experience that I there was a few projects we we're working on that, that were using uh, Mac two at the time. I sort of uh, for, for, for went uh, for, yeah, for went to any uh, framework and, and just sort of cut my own thing. But um, when Framework One came around a few years back, I sort of started looking at it again, and, and it just made sense. It was it was. I mean, I think when Sean was developing, it, he had had the experience of, of working with and working on quite a few of the other frameworks, and uh, 
basically picked the bits he liked and and yeah, dropped the bits that he didn't like uh, to, when he built it. Um, and it just yeah, to me it made a lot of sense. So um, I sort of picked that up as really the the standard way of, of building things these days. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, when you when you talk to Sean about Framework One, probably the answer you get is um, that it was driven by the by a bunch of ideas you wanted to implement in a Fusebox Six release, but couldn't really because of some of the legacy that went into into the Fusebox framework. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know if 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 it finally achieved that basically, but I can definitely see where he was coming from with you know with Framework One. Yeah, I mean, pretty much the um, getting started with a framework one site, you, you just put in the framework.cfe, CFC, you have your application CFC, extend that, and you know, then you just start creating you know, your views and, and your controllers and you know, put the CFCs and CFM files in the right spots on your site, and it just works. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it, I'm, I'm not doing cold fusion code every day uh, now, so it's sort of nice to come back to it um, and not have to have a huge... Uh, ramp up again to to get back into uh, uh, get back into coding uh, under a framework. So yeah, I'm I'm sort of really quite a fan of framework framework one, and it's sort of it's as simple as I need it, which is great. Okay, um, Martin, is there any I don't know tooling around framework one that is sort of worth mentioning, or is it basically just plainly the framework, or are there any I don't know templates? Um, particular libraries that are, you know, supposed to be used with Framework 1 or built for Framework 1 or stuff like that? Um, well, not really. I mean, because it's so simple, there's no need for, like, um, any sort of templating, I guess, or anything like that. I mean, I personally, for the company I work at, Webcam, we um, just have a, in SVN, we have a, um, yeah, we don't use Git yet, unfortunately. Um, in SVN, we have... <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's just legacy but it, we're getting there anyway um yeah so we have basically an application template that you can export to start a new application which basically has an app cfc it supports like multiple environment configurations and has just the basic you know an admin login that uses our back-end ldap system and stuff and i mean but there's no actual tool like there's no eclipse plugins or anything like that or cold fusion builder plugins that specifically target framework one but I don't know that you necessarily need them. Okay. Um, I don't know who, who of you is actually using Cold Fusion Builder or Cold Fusion Builder 2. It ships with support for a bunch of frameworks, right? In some way, doesn't it? If I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, I've seen the menu options. I, I mean, I use CF Builder for Cold Fusion code just because it's easy and it has all the um, auto completion and can start up the dev server and stuff. But. Um, yeah, let me have a look. I can't remember where it is at this stage, but I do remember it's got like CF wheels, I think, and um, possibly some other frameworks. But yeah, I haven't actually investigated that side of things as to what it actually does. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, they are used to give you some sort of a template application or start or create some files or something like that. Okay. Just having a look through... Uh... GitHub to see uh, what Framework 1 stuff I found. I can actually find... I knew Sean had done a closure port of Framework 1, but I actually found a PH... Some guy had done a PHP port of oh, Framework really? 1. Yeah. Yeah, I know that there is a closure port as well. I've seen that before, basically. But I didn't know the PHP port. <laughs> I didn't know there was a PHP port, which I thought was interesting. And... Um, uh, what did I find as well? I actually found a chef recipe for a chef cookbook for Framework 1. Which I thought was interesting too. 
Anyone's work with Chef? I know of it, but I haven't worked with it. <laughs> oh, yeah, Sean recently um, recently posted a message to the Framework One mailing list, just sort of giving an update as to where it's at and stuff. And yeah, he mentioned the um, the closure port of it, but he said that hasn't really gained traction in that community. Yep. Yeah, I think in you know if you do web development in closure, you would probably use Ring, or Ring is sort of the default web framework really for it, and a lot of people probably rather build, um, I don't know, model logic in enclosure and not necessarily a whole web app. I don't know. I mean, that's, yeah, people might do things differently. But it's probably quite hard to, you know, push a new framework into a community anyway. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So let's move to Phil's topic. So Phil, you're presenting um, a talk called Cloudy with a Chance of Mobile Data. Do you want <laughs> to yes, explain us quickly what that means? <laughs> um, well, it, it happened. I was just watching um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs with the kids, uh, the movie, uh, when uh, I was doing the uh, the uh, synopsis for the, uh, <laughs> for the proposal for the talk. So it sort of just fitted uh, a little nicely, I thought. But um, really, I've, I've found myself more and more, like I've said, doing mobile apps, but be it um, uh, iOS apps or, or, or phone gap apps. Um, and more and more, I'm, I'm looking, you know, looking to optimise, looking to improve the, 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 the performance of the apps. And um, the amount of data tra being transferred between, uh, between the, a server and, and the app can sort of have significant um, performance implications. Um, so just looking at how you can best structure um, your server-side um, services that, that return data um, to the app, um, just really to improve the, uh, the overall performance of the app and, and the end user experience. Okay. Um, can you give us a, maybe a bit more of a you know, concrete example? Sure. Um, so let's just, for example, take, you know, you, you've, you've got, a, I, I guess, a typical web develop, development, you know, you've, you've got web pages. Typically, all your HTML and what have you is generated on the server and it's, it's pulled down to um, pulled down in, in, into your browser and it's displayed. So all, all the work is done on the server. Um, you know, everyone's probably got a different view as to, you know, should things be mobile native apps or, or should they be sort of web apps that, you, you know, you can uh, run, run through a browser on, on your device. Um, I mean, I, I tend to think, and, and you know, sort of the work that I'm getting at the moment is that um, people still prefer uh, mobile apps and the mobile app experience, be it native or, or, or phone gap, um, to, to finding things through on a web page. Just, just the branding of, of the App Store and the promotion that you know, Apple does around their App Store and stuff puts in the general public's mind, that's where you go to get apps. Um, so, um, for example, you've got an app and, and you've, you've, you've got some form of dynamic data being shown in that app, be it, I don't know, news articles or something like that. Um, so, basically, the, the app starts up and it, it pings a server and it says, you know, give me the... Um, give me uh, all the news articles, it gets the news articles down and displays them, however it does that. Um, the next time you start up the app, you know, does it does it ping the server again or, or do you have those results case from last time? Um, or does it say, I last checked on last Wednesday or whatever, you know, give me all the new articles or updates since that, since the last time I checked. So it, it's around sort of 
um, the, the presentation is sort of going to be covering how you'd structure your, your server-side services to do Delta updates to mm-hmm. just return a, 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 you know, the most recently updated articles or stuff like that, um, as well as um, things like how, how do you handle the caching in, on, on the client side and, and what, does, what sort of things does a client know about that it's going to pass back to the server. So it, it, I guess at, at a high level, you know, there'll be some code examples of um, – uh, CF, I mean, I'll, I'll use ORM for the examples, but there'll sort of be ORM CS, CFCs that sort of define the, the, the news articles or whatever it is that you, your um, app needs. Uh, and then, you know, things like, be, be in a very simple uh, way, a last updated timestamp or something like that and how you, how you structure that. Um, and then, you know, what happens in the app and, and how do you deal with the caching and, and um, how, do you, how does the app work when you're offline as well? Then that's something I sort of get into a little bit as well. How can you structure your data so that the app can make use of it when it's offline and there's no um, no uh, no net connection to, to check for new articles and things like that? So you're basically then saying you're covering the um, different ways to store data client side in a mobile app, essentially. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, and and, okay. and the effect that has on on how you design your server side. Um, APIs and interfaces. Okay. Okay. Um, Martin, you said you've um, done some mobile development in the past as well. Did you do any like mobile web development, or is that pretty much focused on iOS? Um, well, a bit of both, really. Um, yeah, but I mean, the most recent project we did at work was actually we did a, um, a competition website and app for um, OPSM. They ran a grand final, AFL grand final promotion, and so. Um, I was involved in writing the the backend services for that, as well as the native iOS app front end for that. And that had a mobile website component as well for Android, and at a normal regular desktop website. Yeah, so that was a fairly big project with a short time frame. Okay, um, I mean, you know, that topic that Phil brought up, the decision if you wanna if you wanna build a mobile web app. Or a mobile app, basically, which is distributed through the through the app stores, that comes up comes up quite quite regularly nowadays, right? I mean, I have the discussion quite often with with people, basically. And as much as I agree to a certain extent that people go to app stores, um, I don't think it's a model suitable for every type of you know mobile app or mobile web app you want to build basically and i've seen just recently in the industry my main client works in that a bunch of large players basically have moved off the app store and went back to providing a really really good and really reusable mobile web app basically just because of the limitation that going through the app store essentially brings in terms of updatability, in terms of you know revenue share with Apple or Google or whoever else the offer offering is, basically. And yeah, some of that's about um, educating the client, I suppose, because we've got like some um, one of our clients at the moment. We're building a we're building a mobile website for them. They've got an existing website. We're just building a mobile version of it, and they've sort of said, "Oh, can we, you know, wrap this up and put it on the app store?" And we're sort of saying, well, you know, there's, well, for one, technically Apple's guidelines say you can't just be a, can't just be a link to a website effectively. Like you can't just have a, showing an existing website. But in practice, like there's no real advantage to doing that. Like it's just content sort of thing. There's no, 
application type functionality in it and they just basically think because people want to type in the client's name on the app store and try and find it but yeah you can do that as a well you can't have it on the app store but there's nothing stopping you from having a mobile website that you can add to your home screen on your iphone and still has the icon and still loads up the website so yeah it's just about teaching people that it doesn't have to be on the app store you know there's still other ways of doing this yeah, I had an interesting conversation last night actually with someone um, who who's working a lot in a lot of the times in InDesign, which is like you know a field that I'm not really familiar with in the first place. But InDesign has that digital publishing suite stuff from Adobe nowadays, where you can actually publish your you know your print publication um, to an app to become an interactive magazine or whatever. And then it's being sold through the app stores. And that person I talked to last night basically said, um, you know, there's another hack how you can get like basically a mobile app that is just whatever you want to present on the web, basically. So in InDesign, apparently you can do just like create a text frame and then that text frame is linked to a URL. And then you have like an InDesign static design document with like one big text frame in there, which is... Lo- essentially a web browser basically and you can you can publish out the whole thing to be an app and then you've got like you know a native ios app or an android app or whatever um that runs on your tablet or your mobile phone and it pretty much loads the content um uh from the web essentially like any website you want and i thought hmm yeah i mean (laughs) the only problem with that is that that's a very expensive way to do it if you've seen how much dps licenses cost exactly yeah (laughs) i thought that too we're actually one of the um we're actually a dps reseller in australia and we do work with clients to help them build dps publications so so yeah i've seen some of the some of the numbers behind that and it's just yeah scary (laughs) yeah you you easily get into high four five six figure dollar Amounts with that, I know that I'm aware of that. Yeah. But it's a quite interesting way, you know, for for the designer types to publish a mobile app. It's like, oh, I just you know draw a rectangle in InDesign, and here's my mobile web app. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, definitely has that ease of use. But I mean, I mean, that's also the designer could then, rather than pointing to a website, could actually design like a pretty brochureware stuff that you can't do. In uh, at least not do easily in HTML, CSS as well, and and publish that with something like DPS. Yeah, exactly. Another mm-hmm. alternative. Yeah. Did you ever play with the DPS stuff, Phil? Uh, no, I haven't. No, um, I've, I've I've got clients who are using InDesign to um, create HTML content, which is then published out uh, separately, but not not the actual um, not not taking it through. Um, through, I guess, the official Adobe channels of, 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 of the official Adobe workflow, uh, so to speak. Mm, okay, yeah. Actually, something I just sort of came to mind when you're talking about, you know, discoverability of apps um, on the App Store versus um, versus you know, native web apps and, and things like that. Um, for, for a lot of the cases, I've, I've had people wanting mobile apps, which are essentially nothing more than... Um, than uh, their existing website wrapped up in a mobile app, um, and, and their primary concern in, in taking that into the app store was that all their you know th- their competitors are um, are discoverable through the app store and they're not. Um, so while it's uh, you know a lot of what they a lot a lot of apps on the app store probably could be you know uh, web apps and, and and work perfectly fine through there. It's it's 
the fear of, of a competitor being discovered above themselves, you know, um, that uh, is forcing, in my experience, forcing quite a few people to consider, uh, you know, going native or, or you know, phone gap apps or, or something like that into the web, into the uh, app store. So what do you generally build for those clients then? Um, well, like Martin said, it's... Um, there's there's a fine line between just taking a, a plain app and um, uh, a, a plain website and, and wrapping it up into a to a phone gap app or something like that. But um, you know, if if you take a, um, a a plain looking website and add some form of um, I don't know offline support, you know, with 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 some of the ideas I'm going to be talking about in in my, in my um, presentation. Um, you know, you, you, yeah, exactly. You can um, you can really you can say, well, we've got we've got our, our website, which is you know our, our, our mobile app, which is like our website, but it's adding um, uh, it's adding uh, offline caching. Actually, another, another thing which is um, which has been a sort of a driver of a lot of uh, mobile apps lately or in the past has been the ability to do um, to capture uh, camera Im- images and, and do like uh, image postings, which you can't do through. Um, um, well, you couldn't do previously through, um, you know, just a, on iOS, a, just a Safari um, mm. web page. Um, iOS 6 has come out now and there's new form field types for like uh, image ca- type camera and stuff like that to actually capture images all in HTML. But, but previously, capturing some of those um, uh, requirements that, you, you, you know, things that you could do in the browser desktop, uh, usually with a Flash plugin that you, you couldn't do in, the, in a mobile browser. Um, has sort of been a, a lot of the drive to do mobile apps as well. Speaking of finding for those, sorry. No, so, just go on. Um, so in those sort of scenarios, really what you're doing is you're building, you're actually building them an app that possibly leverages what you've currently got within their current infrastructure and kind of tailoring it more towards a, a mobile application that's sort of better suited for that environment so they can kind of take advantage of that and, and move forward in that direction. Would you, yeah? Well, in general, I mean, if, if you, if you want to be, if you're wanting to be sort of delivering value to, to, to customers and, and then, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, being, being able to, and, 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 end users also appreciate that, that you've got the ability to, to say, well, you're downloading this app, but you're getting some advantage by having it as an app versus yeah. just having it as a native, uh, sorry, as just a, as a mobile web app. Yep. Yep. No, that makes sense. Um, speaking of camera, what I've because that that's one of the issues I find most of the time with clients as well that people say, yeah, but we want to use the camera and we want to capture images and you know upload images from the camera and stuff like that. And it's quite interesting because, like you said, iOS six introduced that um, that option. And when you look at the stats of the iOS six uptake, it is. Unbelievable! I just had a look the other day because I was preparing a talk about mobile for for a conference, and um, apparently, like three weeks after iOS six was rolled out, it had penetration rates from depending on which market you looked in, um, about sixty to sixty five percent, which is just like awesome, really, from my point of view, because it pretty much allows me to use, you know, that feature. And I know that a whole bunch of people will be able to use it on their mobile device. Whereas, you know, and that's not a cheap, that's not supposed to be a cheap shot against Android. But when you look at the Android uptake stats, you know, in terms of Android 4 or 4.1, you know, Android 4 is out there for how long? Six months? More than six months? And the latest stats in the Android market are like 20%. And not even, you know, looking at Android 4.1, which is shockingly low basically that is a really really nice thing of ios i think because 
people just upgrade. Yeah, but most of those people are now really like regretting the decision to upgrade. <laughs> you know, maps don't work and whatnot. Well, I mean, that I is... think that's, that, that's that's a bit overblown. The maps don't work. <laughs> thing. It's, yeah, like to I, pick on it, but, yeah, I would say you know, maps have an issue. Maps not working is not quite true. I mean, you know, there are some mm. cases where it, where maps are broken for some people. I agree with that. Yeah. But in general, it's a quite good upgrade, actually. My favorite um, report was uh, if you're in Brisbane and you wanted to go to a hospital, it just took you to some guy's house. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Although I did see a report the other day with daylight savings kicked over in Melbourne. People lost like 3 p.m. and 3 a.m on their alarm setting clocks, just disappeared. Actually, I, I checked that the other day because I saw someone mentioning that. And um, I, I, I um, yeah, I, I, it was 1 a.m., 3 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. In, in the clock. It's I, gone. I, it's gone. But you I, you know, didn't need it. It's fine. Who wants to set an alarm for 2 a.m. anyway? That's just a ridiculous time. Well, so. you know, if, 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 you know, the late Steve Jobs was still around, he'd just tell you that you just, you don't need those times. You're doing it wrong, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I have to, I have to laugh at the fact that you know, you know, with the whole maps sort of issue and stuff like that. I think he'd just be telling you, you know, well, actually, the world is wrong, and the way the maps are, those are right. So we're just <laughs> going to wait for the world to conform to the way that we have it in our maps. That'll be great. The daylight I, savings. It wasn't, isn't it technically correct that there wasn't a two a.m. because it goes over from one fifty nine to three a.m. Like actually, just, you're probably right. It, it mm-hmm. may have been. I was actually looking at on the um. Huh? On on the daylight saving switchover day, where there was no two a.m., I actually hadn't thought of that. So yeah, there, there wouldn't be a two a.m. Hours. Hmm. Didn't, Phil, didn't you say you lost like two a.m. and three a.m. or something? No, no, I had I had three a.m. appearing twice. Oh. Um, but it, it it may have been that. No, I'm, actually, I'm just looking at my phone now, so it's it's back to normal today. So I've, obviously, I did. I just happened to look at look at it over the um. The long weekend, uh, the, the the daylight saving uh, switchover. So, but um, see, you know, like other other people make mistakes with daylight savings as well. I just read the other week when we had the daylight saving switch in New Zealand, Jetstar um, was delayed by an hour on the Sunday morning after the daylight savings change because they forgot about daylight savings. Oh, that's a good one. So if, <laughs> that's just you know you think like, well, are you an airline? Any other airline in the world manages to do that? How can you forget daylight savings time? Really? That's that uh, What are you going to do? Uh, <laughs> it was when I was reading, a friend of mine said the other day they were parking in the city uh, around daylight savings time, and the clocks in the parking meters hadn't rolled forward. So he had to put in extra money to push it forward <laughs> to where he was now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Basically, get another hour so he wouldn't be out of time. That is pretty good. Anyway. I always hate, hate dealing with time zones. It's. <laughs> oh. Very annoying. That's always good fun. So how did we get to the daylight savings time? Oh, via Apple. Complaining about Apple. Apple. Apple, Complaining about Apple. Yeah, uh, what I was what I was actually just going to point out is, you know, I really like the fact that so many people uptake a new version that you can actually, as a developer, make use of new features like the camera integration in, yeah. in web apps. It was interesting actually that you mentioned the camera, the file upload thing from. Um, from web apps in iOS 6, that that was basically the only reason we had to build a native um, app for this um, competition we did because it was involved uploading photos, mm. and mm. there was just no way of doing it on iOS without a native app. And yeah, if it was a year later, then we would have just built a single mobile web app. Yeah. Cool. 
Although the one thing I have heard is Google now, I mean, one of the things I, I really did lose with um, iOS 6, just getting back onto that, was the maps, was, um, was Street View, which I found to be the most useful part of um, maps. Because, you know, if, you, if you're traveling anywhere, sort of being able mm. just to see where you're, the, the, the layout of the land and the streets and what have you is really useful. But um, I've heard Google now are rolling that into the, um, the web version. So Google are sort of going down with a Street View uh, version that's oh, not yeah. Flash, which... Um, which is, you know, I think a very good thing as well. So, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, it's, it's coming down to the whole, whole death of Flash thing. But, um, you know, you've, you've, got, um, you've got companies now pushing the, the boundary with what you can do in HTML and, and uh, JavaScript apps. Um, and, you know, if we're seeing full sort of street view functionality in the um, browser now on, on iOS, you know, that can only be good for, for wanting to push the boundary with what you can develop as a, as a web app or as, you know, if you're wrapping it in a, in a phone gap a wrapper or something like that as well. So, you know, um, it, it, it seems to be going in the right direction uh, in terms of, you know, getting rid of Flash and, and, um, and, and pushing forward with these features and, and functionality. Yeah, that sounds good. All right, to, uh, uh, to ask a question, I think we've asked most of the speakers that we've had on here. Um, what other sessions are you looking forward to at the conference? Give us, give us one or two sessions that, that have sort of grabbed your fancy for the program, if you have the program in front of you or if you remember. Yeah, you're, put, you're putting me on the spot. I'm bringing up the website. <laughs> <laughs> quick, um, quick, get it up. <laughs> I was actually oh. interested in going to Kai's talk, but it's on at the same time as mine, so I can't go to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, the you know the timings of some talks might change potentially. We'll see how we go with that. I don't that. think they will that much. Yeah, well, yeah, there might be a few tiny changes. Really? Well, if you're going to do that, do it soon because we're doing the conference guide. <laughs> oh, I forgot that. Yeah, there's actually. I need to have a chat to Justin then and see um, if we want to change something. Yeah, do it soon. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> just don't mind us. We'll just talk about the conference for a little while and then we'll come back to the podcast, shall we? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, the, um, the ugly truth about frameworks, that's definitely an interesting one. And sorry, Phil, that clashes with your one. <laughs> oh, no, that's fine. I won't go to yours either then. No. <laughs> fine. fine, then I'll go to Kai's. See what I can. <laughs> yeah, some of the um, Rilo stuff looks interesting too. Um, we don't, we use Adobe Cold Fusion, but definitely like some of the stuff they're doing in Rilo, but don't know if I'll ever get a chance to use that at, at work. But yeah, it's, that sort of seems interesting, especially like the command line sort of stuff that they're doing. Mm. Um, one of the, a friend of mine once mentioned that one thing he likes about, he's a Rails developer, and one thing he likes about that ecosystem is that all the command line tools, all the supporting yep. tools, like the deployment tools, are all written in the same language as you're writing your yep. web application in. And you don't really get that with Cold Fusion. You've got to use other other languages if you want to do you know, automated deployments and stuff like that. So being able to run ColdFusion from the command line would be interesting from that respect. No, I think uh, I think it'd be cool to see if uh, ColdFusion can get like an actual REPL. Yeah. Be able to actually interact with your code while it's running in ColdFusion would be, be pretty impressive and very useful. Yeah. Phil, you brought it up yet? <laughs> what have you got? Um... Actually, I'm I'm quite interested in, in Jeff's presentation on building the Olympics. Uh, obviously, um, yep. scaling out of a uh, of a of a website to, to meet sort of meet sort of what I'm assuming was a uh, ridiculously high peak demand during those few weeks where the Olympics was on is always um, 
always interest, interesting to see how they uh, approach that challenge. So I'm sort yep. of into that. Um, what else? Um, yeah, like like uh, Martin said, the, the Railo stuff and the CLI stuff, that was actually one I was planning on, on going to as well with, um, with Gert. Uh, just, you know, it's, it'd be nice to be able to, like you said, you know, it'd be nice to be able to do a lot more so, you know, have have your, the supporting infrastructure around CF being able to be done in, in the same language. Um, so command line stuff does look um, yeah, it does have a bit of interest to me. Um, and then yeah, I, I was actually thinking of going to, to uh, the, the functional stuff, uh, the presentation that, that Kyle was talking about as well. Uh, question on that, Kai. I mean, I, I saw um, Sean do his presentation at the Melbourne User Group a few months back. Now, yeah, he's, he's, that will be very similar. To be fair. <laughs> Oh, okay, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Well, I was maybe. actually, I was actually even considering changing my doing another different talk because okay. I figure a lot of people, you know, from the Australian Adobe community or Confusion community in particular, would have been to either his Sydney or Melbourne talk, and it's like, man, you know, I mean, it, you know, it is not exactly the same, obviously, but it mm. is still reasonably similar because yeah. you know we are doing similar things in terms of how we. Well, how I use closure, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you know how many new people. I'm sure it'll would still be... be a popular talk. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know how many new people would be there that are really that get something new out of it. So, well, I don't know. I'll, yeah. I think I think you'll find there's still a lot of people who didn't get to those those sessions that'll come down. Yeah, okay. actually, having said that, the the Sean's uh, presentation was one of the sort of most well attended user groups we've had in a while down in Melbourne, but he yep. actually brought in quite a few uh, people from outside the Cold Fusion community as well, as, as in other Clojure user groups and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So um, it was definitely quite interesting. Just just a question, Kai, are you using Clojure in, in production anywhere or is it this, you know, something you're, you're doing, um, you're, just, you're just sort of experimenting with at the moment? Or? At, at the moment, it's my own hobby, basically, and um, oh. you know, trying to learn more about it, trying to find out you know, what the best ways to apply it are the funny thing is you know when you i mean you've been to to sean's talk basically and um i mean he's using it quite heavily in his production environment for his employer basically and i think in the long run that is something where i want to get to but you know it's quite a while away from that i've started building um a web app with closure um using that ring um, web technology framework that you can plug into Clojure, basically, and that essentially—I don't want to say it—you know—it's like a web server, but it—you know—it gives you basically a web framework that allows you to build web applications quite easily with Clojure, which it, which is essentially, you know, by default not really not really made for. So I dabbled with that a little bit and then, you know, tried to plug it into into CFML code, which actually works really nicely with Sean's library with Sean's libraries. Um, even though it works actually better with Rilo because Adobe Cold Fusion is doing some funny stuff when you convert Java objects back and forth some, sometimes. So with Rilo, it's actually really smooth. With Adobe CF, it's uh, you have to you know like work around a few issues. Java cast and stuff. Oh uh, yeah, not yeah yeah, and that's the the easy thing. Sometimes it's just like painful. Okay. It's interesting. Normally, I find the other way. I find Adobe CF is a lot easier to work with Java than than Rilo is, but. That's just interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, like I said, at the moment, it's more like a learning experience and some sort of, like, playing with it and, you know, trying to figure out the best ways to use it, essentially. Cool. 
that all sounds really good. Sweet. So should we maybe wrap it up? Okay. We've got nearly 50 minutes already. Sounds good. So if people want to reach you, Marchin, where can they reach you at? Um, probably easiest is on Twitter. It's just Marchin S, M-A-R-C-I-N-S on Twitter. That's probably pretty much the only active place. I don't blog or anything at the moment. So yeah, yeah. And Phil, where can people reach you? Uh, again, Twitter's a, an easy one to find me on, if you can uh, spell my name, which <laughs> is Phil, Phil Heusler, which is Phil, P-H-I-L, Heusler, H-A-E-U-S-L-E-R. Actually, a much better way to find me would be to find the, uh, the Mad Meetup. So you go to Twitter and you just uh, do at Mad Meetup, which is the Melbourne Adobe Developers Group. Um, you, you'll find me linked in through there, and you'll also find actually the link to the, uh, the Meetup dot com site as well if uh, anyone in melbourne is interested in joining up in ah. uh, with the uh, melbourne adobe meetup just found that as well i'll put that link on there as well beautiful so how can people get in touch with you mark uh people can reach me at my blog where i sometimes write stuff um at compoundtheory.com uh don't write stuff that often but sometimes i do and most likely yeah twitter at neurotic cool and if people want to get hold of me, Agent K at Twitter is probably the easiest way to find me or ping me an email to kai at ventigo-creative.co.nz. Cool. Thanks a lot for joining us, guys. That was really interesting. And um, I think everyone should be really looking forward to um, CF Objective and you know actually seeing and hearing your talks in real life <laughs> not just yeah. virtually wonderful cool yeah, All right. looking, looking forward to it okay cool thanks a lot guys thanks a lot Mark Thank you very for much. your time Hi. and we'll be back soon see ya yeah. bye bye <laughs>